in our third leg, our third section of the post-Christian antidote. Um, we've been talking about what it means to be post-Christian, what it means to have an antidote to that, focusing a lot more on the antidote, obviously, because it doesn't matter how post-Christian or not post-Christian things are if you've got the right antidote, right? Um, so this is a little bit of what I was feeling this week to, to kind of lead us into this space. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming thinking about all the challenges and divisions in our world and the impotence of our governmental leaders. It can also be overwhelming to think about the, the sophistications of the deceptions these days and the gross evil of individuals and corporations behind them. Or maybe, like me, you have been feeling overwhelmed with the reality and implications of AI these days, um, knowing my intelligence is so insufficient to remain relevant at all. Um, and add to that eighth grade math. Yeah, it's real funny, huh? Um, my kids keep coming home with this math that I guess I passed at some point, but it didn't stick real well. So I'm not only is AI making me feel so stupid, but my own kids have been making me feel a little stupid lately as well. I'm like texting my friends on the side, hey, do you know how to do this? And some of them are, know how to do it, which has been nice, but that makes me feel stupid too. Um, so if any number of these or any other overwhelming things are happening in your life, leaving you feel disoriented in your mind or discouraged in your heart, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. He said, do not fear and let not your heart be troubled. Do not fear and let not your heart be troubled. Jesus has given us his spirit and his spirit has more than enough potency to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Jesus' spirit has more than enough omniscience to lead us into all truth no matter how disoriented things become. We are not alone. None of this is a surprise or a threat to the sovereign plans of God Almighty. He is the beginning, but He is also the end. He is the beginning and the end. Where are we headed? We are headed to Jesus. We are headed to His conclusion. There is nothing else. There's a lot of confusion in between those things. There's a lot of things that rise up and rage against all of the plans of God. But in the end, he is the beginning and he is the end. And his promise is that all things will end up new and somehow be better for having once been broken. So just keep offering up your tired, washed up, broken down, insufficient heart, soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> Offer it to him and watch the beauty he creates and the multitudes he feeds with it, with whom, with him you are so mighty. This was confusing to the disciples. It's been confusing to followers of Jesus for a long time. But Jesus' plan is not to make this earthly kingdom whole as we want him to. But his plan was to give us access to a kingdom which will never end and will always be whole. So there's a challenge there. But in Acts chapter 2 is where we pick up our new um, ingredient to this post-Christian antidote. If you'll read with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. It's going to be an interesting thing to watch the DVD in heaven. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Which is a huge knock on Galileans there, at least the Galilean education system. And how is it that we hear each one of them in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the other, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So here in this moment, we're seeing the fire of God show up. We've been talking from the beginning of this series. We talked about how Moses came out of hiding and the fire of God showed up and set set over a million people free from slavery. And then we saw in the life of Elijah in 1 Kings 18 when, when he picked a fight with the darkness and the fire of God came and completely did away with all the deceptions that were holding people in bondage. And now we're looking in the New Testament And we're seeing another moment where the people gathered together as one. And the fire of God came and basically got rid of all their divisions. Begin to make one people out of many. And here in this moment, as soon as God does this really beautiful thing with these people, the post-Christian wind is already blowing. People are saying, well, maybe they're just drunk. Maybe they're just, you know, filled with some sort of wine. And it's like, how often do drunk people do really well at other languages, you know, and speak about the wonders of God? I mean, I I don't know. Maybe they had a different kind of drunk people back then. But um, anyways, it's foolishness. But again, immediately there's this anti, there's something against it, even as God's doing something so beautiful and wonderful. And so we want to see more of God doing the beautiful and wonderful. We want to see the fire of God spread in our day and our time no matter what the post-Christian winds are doing. Now, all of this, most of this, or all of this message came out of my time with my family in Ireland for nine months as we lived there outside of the American bubble, outside of the church in America bubble, and we lived in the Irish bubble, the, the, the church in Ireland bubble. And, and there, what has been very clear is the post-Christian winds have blown so hard and so strong against what was the church there that now um, it, it, there's not much fire There's not a lot of people. Um, They've kind of been beat back into the recesses and outskirts and corners of society. Um, Most of the Christians there, it seemed like, were kind of keeping their head low, just biding their time in some ways. And, And it was while we were there fasting and praying to see that church really come kind of into full fire again that we um, we felt like the Lord was sharing this with us. Come out of hiding pick a fight with the darkness and be together. Figure out what it means to be together, together, together. And so we were sharing that over there. We were praying to that, and we got to see some really neat things happen. 
When we first got there, the weather was okay, and, and we were hopeful, but then in a, a couple months after, the weather turned bad, and we lost a lot of hope. <laughs> it just got so dark, and it was so lonely, and it was so depressing to kind of see the, the reality of the people of God. There were awesome followers in Christ, but man, there was just not many, and there wasn't much strength in the church, even though you would see these massive cathedrals and these remnants of a time where the fire of God was really strong. The post-Christian winds definitely seemed to have won. And, uh, and we got to see through all of these things, through doing this, coming out of hiding, picking a fight with the darkness, and, and being faithful to be together, we got to see this church of about 5 to 10 really kind of blossom into a church of about 45 that had all ages. And they just did, um, last month, they just did a, uh, their first vacation Bible school, kind of a summer camp for kids. Uh, and the church has been there for 30 years, and, but they've never had kids, you know, in the church to be able to do this. So they did that, and it was not just for the kids in the church, but kids from the neighborhoods were coming to, and it was this really neat thing. They just baptized um, a lady, and the Lord's adding to the church all the time. We keep seeing picture after picture as the fire of God continues to spread and grow in that place. So it's been very encouraging, and the joy that the people have and the care that they're giving to each other is really, really wonderful. So... To review, what are the post-Christian winds? We've been using that phrase, post-Christian winds, blowing against the things of God. Um, we've talked about having a form of godliness but denying its power, which is a verse from Galatians. And, and the picture of those big cathedrals with no one in it or no real power in it is, is just this picture that's etched in our mind. And I want to make sure here in, in, in our version of, of the world, in our little corner of the world, I want to make sure that we do not have a form of godliness but have no power which is true and possible, and the people of God fall prey to that often. Um, we don't want to be like Samson. This is the other analogy where Samson um, was someone who was endowed with really supernatural strength. He did these great feats, but uh, he also lived a life of kind of compromise. He, he, would, he would kind of enjoy the world and also enjoy the things of God, and, and he was constantly compromising and trying to do both. He was wavering between two things. And one day he had, he, had, he, had, he had played around so much that he even told Delilah, his Philistine girlfriend, to cut his hair. And so she cuts his hair, and, and like had happened before, he, was, he woke up, he was tied up, the Philistines were upon him. And this is what the Bible says. It says, He awoke from his sleep and thought, I will go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And... Uh, and I, I came back from Ireland. I just really don't want to see that happen to my own soul, to my family, or to the church that I love so much. Um, one last analogy that's been helpful. We've been doing deep dives on Wednesday night where we kind of um, process and dialogue a lot more of this. And you can check out the podcast if you're interested in that. Um, but one other analogy is a dam. So picture, picture a dam. For me, I always go straight to fugitive, right, where he's just like jumping off. But you can go Hoover Dam, whatever you want. I think we might have a picture of a dam. Bam, look at that. So here's, here is, is this dam that's made up of, of ingredients, made up of blocks and cement, and it's kind of built up, and it's holding back all this water. And if that dam was to break, all that water would come and, and cause a lot of devastation to things below. Um, and so we have this idea of a dam, and, 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 and the, the, a good picture of what the people of God are supposed to be in this world are people who hold back evil, who fight against evil, who do their best to, to make sure there is as little deception and destruction happening in the world. That's why it is such a grief when the people of God do the exact opposite. But that's our call is to hold back. And we're also called to produce beauty and good in this world. 
No doubt about it. But what's happening with this post-Christian kind of winds that are blowing is, is people are starting to say, okay, Christians, you know, we've seen you mess up enough. Are we doing? So we just kind of want to get rid of Christianity. We want to get those. And maybe not all of the things. There's some good things. Or you can just kind of be in the corners doing your thing. But we just want to remove some of these, some of these few things. Like, one, we want to get rid of this guy, Jesus. We don't want someone else to have authority over us. We want to have our own authority. We want to be able to make our own decisions through law, Supreme Court, whatever. We want to decide what's right and what's wrong. We don't want Jesus telling us what to do. Oh, and, and these scriptures that you have. These scriptures are archaic. They're oppressive. They're bigoted. They're all these things. These are not helping us at all. These are actually causing the problems. At all. So let's get rid of that. Your sexual ethic. Oh, we hate your sexual ethic. It's so confining. It's so restricting. It's actually the cause of so much damage in the world. We want to get rid of that. And on and on we could go. There's these things that, 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 are, that are wanting to get rid of, society's wanting to get rid of, but what they don't realize, what the Bible teaches, and what civilizations before us have experienced, is that if you pull those things around, you're not pulling a few blocks off the top, you're pulling out the very foundations. You're pulling out the basis of the entire thing. And so you want the Judeo-Christian fruits, but you don't want the main things that make Judeo-Christian reality good in society. And so if we're to pull those things out, the whole dam's going to break. And what's going to come is destruction. And societies have gone that way before. So that's kind of what we're dealing with. So that's the big, scary, post-Christian reality. But the main thing for us is we just need to know the antidote because it doesn't matter how you know, strong the winds are blowing. It doesn't matter how far along the spectrum we might be of post-Christianity if we have the antidote. And for me and what we've been discussing is it's coming out of hiding, not being ashamed of the gospel, picking a fight with the darkness, not with people, but whatever darkness might be holding people. And then this today is we got to be together and go together. We got to figure out what together means. We got to be together together. Um, it's kind of like the old buddy systems coming back. Maybe. Remember the buddy system? Maybe not. Um, we've also had a couple books in our library that have been helping us. The Antidote According to Comf Confronting Christianity. Um, Melissa McLaughlin, I think the, the author of that book. Um, she said we need to reclaim university, diversity, morality, and sexuality. She said it's been interesting to see how Christians are actually the ones that brought freedom in all these areas. And now we're being accused of being the ones who um, brought damage in those areas. The Great Evangelical Recession. Uh, the antidote for that book is to do good, to be solvent, um, to bring healing and reignite the passion that we need to follow Christ. I love to be solvent is one of those. And that's such a like, it's such a funny thing. So we're coming to the end of our fiscal calendar as, as you know, Living Streams organization. We start October 1 with a new fiscal calendar. And so we're going through this whole debate with elders and finance committee and even outside entities that audit ourselves. Integrity is a big deal. Um, but it's funny because there was just this moment of a little debate like, okay, so should we put forth a, a balanced budget or can we, you know, have a little bit extra um, and just hope for the best? And I was like, this, this is so American right now. We're basically just saying, oh, whatever, we don't need to balance our budget anymore. It, so just so you know, we, we're balancing our budget. We decide, we decide we're going with a balanced budget. We're not just going to pretend or just kind of try and live off some debt. Or like, we're not going to do that. that. That didn't last long. The main thing, it was just so, because we're, we're cutting things down, we're trying to cut weight a little bit. It, it's, it's, I think people are saying, oh, that's a hard thing. But, but no, we, we know it's exactly what we need to 
be doing. But it's just so funny how that can seep in, even to a church. You know, we're deciding, oh, let's just raise the debt ceiling. That's a good idea. That's been real helpful for everybody. No, we're not, we're not doing that. So be solvent. I love that he said that. It's so anti-American. Um, the antidote according to 1 Peter 2, 12, uh, 15 and 15 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. For it is God's will that you, by doing good, should silence the talk of ignorant and foolish people. How good is that? And I'm saying these because if you feel like my version of the antidote's a little weak, here, you've got these other ones too. But I love that. That was written thousands of years ago into the society that it was written. And it still has so much application for us today. Good deeds are not for our salvation. Good deeds don't bring about your own salvation, but your good deeds actually can help others find the salvation in Christ. It's an important thing. And lastly, there's an antidote given to us by Margaret Feinberg, who's actually speaking um, at our women's conference on September 30th, the one-day conference. Please check it out. Please make time for it. Um, It'll be good not just for you, but our whole church, the more we can get the ladies there. And what she says is that I would hope that people would look at Christians and say, Those Christians are the ones who run in when everyone else is running out. That's coming out of hiding, picking a fight with the darkness together, together. These Christians are the ones who don't give up on the crumbling inner cities. Those Christians are the ones who brought peace to Darfur. Those Christians are the ones who put an end to human trafficking. Those Christians are the ones who helped win the war on AIDS around the world. Those Christians are the ones who would write those incredible lyrics, pen those unforgettable books, and create artwork that's mesmerizing. Those Christians are the ones who helped my mother when she got Alzheimer's. Those Christians are the ones who were kind to me when I was new to the area. Those Christians are the ones that made me want to believe in God. That's her picture of what the antidote is like. And uh, so, with all that being said, Acts chapter 2 gives us this picture of the church being together, 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 um, and the fire of God coming. And I love it in that part there. They even kind of pick on them as Galileans. All these people are saying, how is this possible that something so beautiful is happening with the Galileans? Something so powerful is happening with the Galileans. It gives me hope because, like I said in the beginning, I'm feeling so foolish maybe, so irrelevant maybe in what I have to offer. But, but when the fire of God comes, things change. When it's not just me, then I can actually offer something good to the world. And this practice that they had of gathering together was when they were all together in one place that the fire of God came, the wind of God, and the fire of God came and produced something beautiful. And this became their practice, Acts 2, 46 through 47, just a little bit further down. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Somehow as they gathered faithfully day by day, the Lord was faithful to add to their number day by day. There was something about the gathering that was so life-giving, that was so light-giving, that it was adding to the people day by day. In this first instance and then continuing on. Um, A friend of mine invited me to go to breakfast with him and a friend of his. 
he was wanting us all to get together and basically just talk about faith. Um, my, my friend goes to our church here, and the other friend is not a follower of Jesus, not even really a fan of Jesus at all. And so we sat there, and we were, we were talking, and we were just discussing, and he was saying all these interesting things. He was a, he was a fascinating guy, a really good guy. And he was, he was saying all these things, and we were talking everything through, and, and, and faith in the age of AI and all of this. It was, it was, it was really interesting for me. And we got to the end of it, and, and this guy, he was like, I got to go now. But he said, this was interesting. You know, maybe I would be up for doing this again. He's like, do you guys do this every day? And we both looked at each other, and we were like, no. This is the first time we've ever done this, man. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we'll get together because you're interested. We'll do this again or something like that. But it was just so funny that for him, from an outside perspective, he was like, man, things are getting so intense in our world. Things are getting so confusing. Um, you guys, it seems like it would probably be a good practice for you guys to be doing this every day. And we were like, yeah, it's not a bad idea, man. Not a bad idea. Um, but that was their practice in the beginning. They were doing this daily, faithfully. They made it a rhythm of their lives to get together with other believers to fan into flame what Jesus had been doing, to discuss what was going on, to wrestle out their faith in community. They did this as a regular practice, and as regular as they did it is as regular as God responded to it. You see that? They did day by day, and God saw fit to add to their number day by day. I love that connection. And so I, I, I think it's important for us to do the same. Acts chapter 4 continues this practice. And they, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love the honesty of the Scriptures that is constantly saying that without God, without the Spirit, without something entering in from outside, this wouldn't have gone anywhere. It wasn't their pedigree. It wasn't their, their knowledge, their wisdom. It was the connection and their willingness with them and the Spirit of God that caused these beautiful things to happen. And, uh, and that, that's true for us. Um, what we talk about here at Living Streams is that God doesn't want to make you good at church. This is so important, and this is one of the saddest things I feel like the Christian church has taught people, that God wants to make you good at church. Because what that means is basically God wants to make you good at one hour on a Sunday, and maybe if you're really crazy, like an hour on a Wednesday or something. Like that's all God's interested in. And so we have, you have Christians, you know, often just kind of like vying to see who can show up better and present better in, in the church situation. That is not what God wants. In fact, there's really harsh things God has to say about those. He's like, I'm plugging my ears when you're singing because I'm so sick of it. What God wants us to do is not be good at church. He wants us to be good at life. That's what he, he is the author of life. He's way more interested in the other hours. Yes, these are important hours, I think, for training, for, for growing, for encouragement. But God's way more interested in the other hours. That's where he wants to meet you and be with you. And walk with you. And so for us, we really are in, always encouraging people to be in life groups. That's the kind of phrase that we get. It's groups smaller than this. Groups where you can actually be known and, and, and know people. The greatest pay dirt of your spiritual formation is not going to happen here and in this place. It's going to happen in the life on life 
wrestling things out with some trusted brothers and sisters as you try and figure this stuff out. That's where true formation happens. That's the way the kingdom of heaven, that's the way the work of Jesus, the family of Jesus has grown. Way more than gatherings like this, it's one-on-one discipleship relationships. For me, it was when I was a senior in high school and this guy named Jason Beale, for no reason at all, except for, I guess, the Spirit of God in him, just thought it was really important to make sure my life goes well and make sure I know about Jesus. And at the time that I met him, he was living on food stamps, got married too young, had a kid, and was just scrambling to get by. But in all that scrambling, he made time for me and made it a part of his weekly routine to make sure and check in with me and ask me questions and ask me what I'm struggling with and all these things. And he opened up the way of Jesus to me. And I'm forever grateful. I've told him many times. But those discipleship relationships, that's when I was in Ireland. I just kept praying, Lord, please help us find some relationships that can ultimately become discipleship relationships. Not just me discipling, but also being discipled. When you look at what Jesus, Jesus had a big job when he came to the planet, when he stepped onto our sod. He had a huge job, the salvation of the world. It's a big job. And his method, the plan that he executed to bring that about was he got together with about 12 guys. And he gathered them in close. And he took care of them. And actually, John 17, right before he went to the cross, he prays. And he says, Father, I've kept all those you've given to me, except for the one destined to perdition. (laughs) That was his plan, was to gather a band of brothers around him that he could train. And then he wanted real quickly for them to start gathering some people around them. And so we're at this place where we need to, every moment of our lives, we need to know who has God given keep over our souls and who has God given us to keep over their souls. And if we can do that, if we can interconnect like that, then what we're going to have is something so strong that no matter what wind might blow, we're not going to be picked off. We're not going to be blown away. But we've got to really get serious about it. We've got to get intentional about it. God's plan for you, God's plan for your life, God's plan for your discipleship and formation is for you to have a little group of people that you're doing life with. And that's how you're experiencing his presence in addition to other things. Um, It was Jesus' plan. Now, Jesus took on 12, and, you know, one didn't work out so good. So who are we to think that we could take on 12? Maybe, maybe think about three, maybe two, three, maybe five if you're like really feeling it. But I'm, I'm telling you, like we need to get into these things. One of the things as the church, we're trying to figure out, okay, we're in charge. We have some sort of keep over the people that come to this church. What can we do to make sure that they're prepared well for whatever might come in the future? And one of the things we really feel strongly is we need to identify kind of lieutenants and get everyone into the platoons. And that's, I mean, we're not trying to get military or anything, but we know when the military goes into battle, what they do is they try and get everybody into little groups to make sure they're caring for one each other, watching each other's back, all of those type of things. And it would really be smart for us if we want to navigate and find success in this time of challenge in our society, if we would do the same. So what does this look like? Well, first and foremost, um, 
It looks like family. I think the primary keep that God has given to each one of us is, is our family. So husbands, your keep is your wife's soul. You're supposed to love her and care for her like Christ loved the church who gave everything for her. Your job is not to make money, first and foremost. Your job is not to be cool with the other dudes. Your job is to make sure she is well taken care of. She's a well-watered garden. And if she's not, then God's looking at you. And wives, you have the same keep over your husband's soul. He is supposed to be a well-watered garden. God has given you keep over him. That's why the Bible says that we submit to one another. To care for each other. To bring the best out of each other. And your kids, God has given your kids to your keep, to care for, to grow, to nourish, to see them flower. And when they do, rejoice with them and celebrate with them and stay faithful to them. Even when they get so annoying, they think they know better than you. And then they bring eighth grade math home to you, make you feel even more stupid. And then they talk and say bet and say less and all these things. And you're just like, I don't understand, man. <laughs> Anyways, kind of got off there a little bit. Sorry. So first of all, family is so important. And um, in addition to that, we know that family, when it goes well, is a beautiful thing. But when it doesn't go well, it's a very, very painful thing. And so God has also given us this thing called church family. It's Jesus' idea that we would have family beyond just our nuclear family so that everyone could make sure they're covered. And somehow in the process, I don't know exactly how or when it all works, but somehow that which is spiritual family actually supersedes that which is natural family because when we get to heaven, when we get to that next phase, um, there will be neither marriage nor given mar giving in marriage, as Jesus says. So somehow there's a different family construct there. But for now, definitely, this is how God has given us. Keep, it's, family is God's idea from the beginning. He made the world and he said it's so good. And he said, let's make family to make sure that goodness stays. So not only is it family, but it's church family. And we're going to spend, we're starting next week, a sermon series called Life Together. We're going to just basically kind of unpack all the New Testament has to say about what what we can do, what we can watch out for, how to do life together well as a church family. And it's so funny because Paul in the last two epistles or two chapters of all his epistles is basically just saying, okay, I said all of that now. I need to talk to Eurychus and Syntyche because they're being jerks to each other and they need to stop. Or I need to tell your husbands, you better do a better job of taking care of your wives. Or kids, quit disobeying your parents. Like, he just gets so practical about the life together. And the truth is what you find out is it's hard. It's hard. Being in the kind of relationship that God is calling Christians to be is hard because people are so annoying. And I'm so annoying. And the closer we get, the more those flaws are exposed. But once those flaws are exposed, the more the healing of God can come. And we're not in hiding anymore. We're not just living in this brokenness, but we can start to actually find the healing. But it's hard. So we're going to go through all of that together. Um, we've actually get coined kind of four, four phrases to help us understand what being in community looks like. And this is what we pray for and long for, for all of our life groups, that there would be raw authenticity, that there would be relentless encouragement, 
that there would be biblical counsel. This still is the greatest plan that we have, the greatest roadmap we have to navigate this life. And this didn't come just from some ancient people. This is inspired by God himself. You know, there's three kinds of AI, right? There's artificial intelligence, there's ancient intelligence, and then there's almighty intelligence. And this is full of almighty intelligence, especially when it's coupled with the spirit that lives inside of us through Jesus and the people of God around us. We can know the truth. and We can walk in it boldly. And the last thing is genuine friendship. Sometimes that's what people need more than anything else right now. They just need to know they're not alone in this crazy world. And a couple of the warnings that the scriptures give us along these lines, if we go it alone, we'll be easily picked off. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And if we try and go alone, we'll be easily deceived. Proverbs 18 says, A man who isolates himself, he seeks his own desires, and he rages against all wise judgment. So we've got to figure out what together means, and we've got to go together, be together, go together, be together. Um, so that's the end of this message and sermon series. I'm going to um, call us to just a moment of quiet and prayer, contemplation. I'm going to read a verse to us, but the most important thing right now is that we, we listen. We listen for what the Spirit might be saying to His church today. And all these words and all this message, what really matters is what God is saying. And so Jesus, as we quiet our hearts and as we listen and we read something that was written so long ago, inspired by you, I pray you would just help us to be able to grab onto something for whatever challenges we're facing this week. Holy Spirit, please come and guide us. We want to be beautiful for you and for the people around us. We want to hold back all the darkness that's trying to take over our own souls or our families or the world around us. And we thank you that you want the same thing. So as I read this, just listen to see what the Lord might highlight for you. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. Because there was no end to his toil, he was always working. And yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of so much enjoyment by working so hard? This too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. Because two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. 
Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And Lord, we do ask that you would show us how to be together. Whether it's a broken marriage in this room right now that needs to figure out how to invite you in. Whether it's a broken family or relationship between a mom and a son or a son and a, or a daughter and a dad. Whatever it might be, Lord. I pray that right now your spirit would move in and bring about forgiveness and love whatever relationships are broken even in this place in our church family Lord pray for forgiveness and courage and humility and pray for all the divisions in our land Lord political divisions racial divisions sexual divisions gender divisions religious divisions, socioeconomic, Lord, all these things. We pray that your spirit, your fire would come, Lord, and you would show us the path to bring all things together. That no one would feel out in the cold. That no one would feel less than. but everyone could know the full depth and height and width of your great love that lasts forevermore. And I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.